2006, October 11th. Today is Lecture 15, The Watershed, Tycho and Kepler, which will begin in just a moment. Now, yesterday, we continued our discussion about how we began to actually understand the whys and wherefores of planetary motion coming forward from the ancient world, from Greece and classical Rome, into essentially the, middle, the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance, and we met Nicholas Copernicus. Copernicus was a staunch Aristotelian. He believed in the primacy of the Aristotelian view of the world and what we would now call Aristotelian mechanics, the idea that uniform circular motion was the most perfect form of motion and was expected in the heavens. But the problem was he didn't like Ptolemy's equant. He didn't like the removal of uniform circular motion and its replacement by uniform angular motion. So he decided to try to purify the Aristotelian, the Ptolemaic system, by removing this un-Aristotelian equant and restoring uniform circular motion. But in doing so, he found that the best way to do that was to revive Aristarchus's old idea of a heliocentric system, in which you put the sun as the center of motion, not the Earth, and you set the Earth into motion around the sun as the third planet in order outwards from the sun. By doing that, he still required epicycles. He still needed those wheels within wheels in order to get the variable speeds of the planets, the sun, and the moon correct, because the planets, moon, and sun do not move at a uniform speed as seen across the sky. But things like retrograde motion were very naturally explained as simply an optical illusion caused by the fact that we are viewing a moving solar system from a position which itself is moving from being on the Earth, an Earth that is rotating about its axis once and revolving around the sun. And in the year 1543, he described these results in a book called De Revolutionibus. Many people considered that to be a highly revolutionary work, but Copernicus himself was really no revolutionary. He firmly had his feet grounded in both worlds, the old world of the Aristotelian way of viewing things and the beginnings of what was known as the Renaissance. We're now going to find that then in Copernicus's generation really did not carry the ideas forward. They got attention. People paid attention to them a great deal. Some people opposed them on theological grounds or even on scientific grounds. But in general, it took a while for these ideas to percolate. And it actually began to come to a head, not with the generation of Copernicus, but with the generation following. And today we're going to see two people who really stand at the main transition between the Aristotelian and the modern world, and that is Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler in a lecture I call The Watershed. The key ideas today is I want to introduce you to Tycho Brahe. He's really the ultimate naked eye astronomer. He's, he's the person who really brought naked eye pre-telescopic techniques to their highest level of development in art. And what Tycho is important for, for two things. The first is really that he amassed 20 years of the highest precision planetary data that had ever been recorded. He basically pushed the state of the art as far as you can do it with the naked eye, and his data were collected over 20 years of both planetary motions and star catalogs were the best astronomical database available, period. The second thing that he did was late in his life, he hired a young mathematician by the name of Johannes Kepler to help his life's legacy of analyzing these data. And by doing that, Tycho unwittingly set in motion a real revolutionary. Johannes Kepler was a brilliant theorist who analyzed Tycho's data and came to key insights into the nature of planetary motions that was to end nearly 2,000 years of the Aristotelian view of the world. And this can be summed up as three empirical laws that Kepler derived. The first law, which says that orbits are ellipses with the sun at one focus. 
The second law, or the so-called equal areas law, that explained the changing speeds of planets as they moved around the sun. And finally, the third law that found a precise mathematical relationship between the orbital period of a planet and the size of the planet's orbit, represented as the period squared is equal to the semi-major axis cubed. We're going to have to all explain these, of course, but these are the basic key ideas. And actually, if you know nothing else about this lecture, these three laws are absolutely essential to everything that follows. The rest of the background here, of course, sets the stage. Now, the first person we're going to meet is, is Tycho Brahe. Tycho Brahe was born in the year 1546, for those of you who keep track of such things, as three years after Nicholas Copernicus's death. So this is a person coming along really in the first full generation after that of Nicholas Copernicus. These are people who were born into the world where the new world was still part of the view. Whereas, remember, with Copernicus, he was born 20 years before the first voyage of Columbus. So the whole complete intellectual change that occurred when people began to discover things that were utterly unknown in Europe forever. Now this generation comes along and the change isn't so abrupt, it's actually part of their world. He was a member of the Danish nobility. The Brahe family was sufficiently highly ranking that they were as close to royalty as you could get without actually being a member of the royal family. In fact, um, two of his um, cousins were from two very famous families, the Rosencrantz family and the Guildenstern family. Two of his cousins in that family were sent as ambassadors to England in his childhood and made a great impression on London society, including a young writer named William Shakespeare. That's where Rosencrantz and Guildenstern enter the play Hamlet, the Danish prince. Um, he was an instrument builder and an astronomer. He was very different from many of the noblemen of his time. He could have basically gone into government, gone to the Danish court, and had a very comfortable life of ease. But Tyke Tycho was an excellent mathematician. In fact, he was a sufficiently good mathematician that he, at one point in college, got into a fight with one of his friends over who was the greatest, better mathematician of the two. And Tycho kind of taunted his friend. Pretty soon, sharp words were exchanged, and then sharp swords were drawn. And in the process of the ensuing duel, the end of Tycho's nose was chopped off by his friend. And for the rest of his life, this bit of nose here with this funny band is not a decoration. That's actually a false nose that he wore over the stump of his previous nose. He had a sort of silver and pewter one for everyday wear, a wooden one for sort of when he's working in the fields, and he had a golden one, of course, for when he was in, in proper public positions. So he was the man with the golden nose. But Tycho was a difficult and proud Danish nobleman. He was also, as I said, a brilliant mathematician and, a, and an instrument builder of unquestionable skill. He really admired Copernicus as a mathematician. We actually have, by the, by the luck of history, Tycho's copy of De Revolutionibus and can see his marginal notes in that book. He was absolutely fascinated by the ideas. He really revered Copernicus as a tremendous mathematician, but he did not like the fact that Copernicus set the earth in motion. That really offended Tycho, Tycho's ideas of, of pure Aristotelianism. He felt that, that Copernicus went one step too far in trying to get rid of the un-Aristotelian idea of the equant He'd set the earth in motion, which is an equally, if not more so, an Aristotelian idea. It was an absurdity to the Aristotelians. And so what Tycho really wanted to do was to try to put the earth back and fixed and unmoving at the center and retain uniform circular motion. And he set about trying to do this. In the end, this effort of Tycho to try to be a better astronomer than, than Nicholas Copernicus made him himself into the greatest naked eye astronomer of the pre-telescopic age. Tycho was not going to be surpassed until the invention of the telescope and nearly, nearly a generation later.
Now, what really got Tycho started was an observation as a young man at 26 of the great nova of the year 1752. In the year of 1752, a bright star appeared in Cassiopeia, in fact, brighter than all of the stars that make up the familiar W shape of the constellation of Cassiopeia in the northern sky. It appeared where no star was before and then faded out over the course of a couple of months, and it was brilliantly visible to the naked eye. Tycho immediately set about trying to measure this phenomenon because in the true Aristotelian view of the world, change was what occurred in the sublunar realm. Right? The heavens were the place of unceasing motion but utter perfection. Uniform circular motion and perfect spheres and all that good stuff. Change was simply not something that occurred in the heavens. And here was suddenly a very obvious change in the heavens. The Aristotelian view would say, well, that has to be within the sublunar sphere and therefore it's relatively close. Tycho reasoned, well, if it's closer to the Earth than the Moon, then there's an effect of parallax. I want you all to try this. To put your arms out, arm out at arm's length, put your thumbs up, close one of your eyes, and cover my face with your thumb. Now, open one eye and close the other eye, and blink them back and forth. And you can see your thumb appears to move back and forth. Now move your thumb about halfway or more closer, and do the same trick. You notice your thumb appears to move a whole lot more as a consequence of being closer. That's the effect of parallax. If you can measure that parallax shift because of looking at something from one place to another, now from one eye to another is not far enough, but if you watch a star at sunset and then again at sunrise where you've moved almost entirely the diameter of the Earth during that time, then you should have a fairly large what we call baseline. Instead of being the couple of inches between my eyes, you now have the full 12,000 kilometers of the diameter of the Earth as the base of the triangle. And if the star was closer than the moon, you would see it slip back and forth in this motion of parallax. Tycho set about to measure the parallax, but he failed. But you could measure the parallax of the moon. That immediately told Tycho that this new object, this Nova Stella, was beyond the moon, out in the celestial realm where there wasn't supposed to be any change. And he saw that as a tremendous blow to the Ptolemaic system. It suddenly was a violation of some of the basic principles of that. And he decided to explain that. He decided that his life's work was to explain the existence of the nova in the celestial realm and to do so to try to understand the deficiencies of the Ptolemaic system and replace it with something which actually worked. And he set about defining his own Tychonic system to replace the Ptolemaic. The Tychonic system is an oddity. It's a hybrid the Earth is at the center, and the, sun and the Sun and the Moon go around the Earth, but the planets go around the Sun, including a comet here shown. This is actually a comet that he observed that he also failed to measure the parallax for and therefore established was beyond the circle of the Moon. Now, not drawn on this diagram, which is from Tycho's book, would have been the orbit of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn were much larger than the circle of the Sun. And that explained the superior-inferior split between Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and Venus and Mercury. And it established why it was that Venus and Mercury always stayed close to the sun on the sky, because they were riding around. He introduced the full machinery of epicycles, but he eliminated the equant. And so, like the Copernican system, he had uniform circular motion, but he had the Earth at the center. He just moved the rest of the solar system around the sun. So he had two centers of motion which was a slightly non-Aristotelian view of the world, 
but it actually satisfied his needs to, to actually describe the system. He'd gotten uniform circular motion, and he set the world at rest at the center. So he thought he'd achieved the perfection of, the, of a Aristotelian style of the world, and it's a funny thing, because, you know, all he had to do was fix the sun at the center. He'd recover the Copernican system in whole, all he did was really simply freeze himself on the frame of reference of the Earth. He absolutely insisted the Earth must be stationary. So he got within one step of the Copernican system, but he backed off because he didn't want to set the Earth in motion. Now, it wasn't enough to Tycho that he assert his system and make calculations for it. He needed very precise astronomical data to show that his system was right. Tycho is a little different than the people who came before. He was not content with merely preserving appearances. Tycho felt that the objects in the solar system were physical objects and therefore demanded not only a mathematical and geometric description, but a physical description of the motions. And he knew that that physical description could only come by getting the very best data. So Tycho is taking those first steps towards the modern approach of science where we seek physical explanations rather than just coming up with the explanation that looks good, that preserves appearances. Now, as a wealthy man and as a high-ranking member of the Danish court, he got from the king a grant of an entire island, the island of Havain, which is out in the Orisund Strait, which is now between modern Sweden and Denmark. It's a beautiful island. It's, I'm hoping someday to go there. There's the Tycho House there in the museum. He was given the entire island and all of its rents, and, and all of the peasants there, of course, had to work for Tycho, both labor and rent, rent money. With royal support, he built a house he called Uraniborg, the heavenly castle. He equipped it with the best astronomical instruments that he could design, and using these instruments, he achieved an absolutely unprecedented angular accuracy of one to two arc minutes. We now know with modern optical theory that this is the absolute smallest angle you can measure using naked eye techniques. Tycho's technique was unbelievably good. He was a, an absolute master of this. And he didn't just order instruments from the best makers. He found the best people who worked in brass and steel and other, and other materials, but he designed them and he used them himself. Tycho was really an, a, a, really an, a, an inspiration to people. And as a consequence, because Tycho not only had the best equipment, but he himself was an extremely skilled mathematician, this began to attract other scholars who wanted to learn from Tycho the arts of observation. And so Uraniborg basically became the most important astronomical research center in Europe during the latter part of the 16th and early part of the 17th centuries. This really was like the Caltech or Harvard of the Renaissance world for, for astronomy, much in the same way that the giant telescopes of the 20th century made Harvard and Caltech and places like that the astronomical centers. Ronneborg has unfortunately been torn down in past years, but we have all of Tycho's um, architectural drawings. He also designed the building as an architect. He was quite, quite a Renaissance man in the literal sense of the word. Here's a modern, reconstru oops, modern reconstructive painting of Ronneborg. You can see the little door opening up here. That's the part of the housing for Tycho's instruments. He had some side instruments out there, and there was another set of instruments over there, a nice living room, guest, guest rooms. In the basement, he had laboratories. This was a fully-fledged personal observatory, and it contained some of the best instruments in the world. This was not just a vanity observatory. This was a working scientific institute. Here are some pictures of that remain of Tycho's instruments. Of course, they've all been destroyed over the course of time, but we have detailed explanations from the books of Tycho himself and these beautiful engravings here. 
This is a, uh, an astronomical sextant on its mounting. And this is the great mural quadrant. It was the largest of the instruments that he built and it was the one that was able to achieve roughly one arc minute accuracy in angles. Uh, this is a very deceptive picture. This is a little trompe l'oeil going on here. This is not Tycho himself. That's a painting of Tycho that was drawn on the wall, hence the name the mural quadrant. The quadrant shown here with three assistants. This would be the astronomer making the recordings here by candlelight. One astronomer assistant taking the observations through a sighting device that goes through a slot in the sky that watches the stars come by. And then a third assistant here is watching a clock because of course the heavens turn above you and you watch the stars as they come through the slot in the door and you keep accurate time to know where you are in the heavens. He had the most accurate clocks ever built. And all these markings on here, it's too much detail to go into in the scope of this class. But he actually was able to take into account the small inaccuracies of how you make angular measurements and really brought this to the state of the art. So what did he get? What, did, what kind of data did the Lord of Aranaborg actually amass? Well, the first thing he did was he built a star catalog. And he built a star catalog whose precise positions of the stars were known to one to two arc minutes. And he made a catalog of 777 stars. It's purely an accident the number came out that way. This happens to be about the number of bright stars visible from the island of Hivain at, at the time that he was making his observations. And he had them inscribed on a massive brass globe. That Star catalog defines his frame of reference for all of his measurements because now you're going to measure the motions of the planets against or relative to the positions of the stars. So this was his making his base map. He was making his latitude and longitude grid, if you will, for the entire celestial sky. It's a beautiful catalog. It took about from that, he then took that star catalog and began to make regular observations of all the naked eye planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And he did so over the course of 20 years of operations. This was a huge, self-consistent, high-precision database. One of the observations that he made early on in the process was the Great Comet of 1577. This was before he actually built from Vane. He was able to show that it was further away than the moon and it was orbiting the sun. He actually saw that the arc the comet was following in the sky was moving with the sun, and therefore it was the comet orbiting the sun. It was that observation that allowed him to make the leap that Mercury and Venus must be orbiting the sun, and then from there decided to add Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, building up his Tychonic system. But the real thing that Tycho did that was going to be of utmost importance to us is given this base of 777 stars, he began to make very, very intensive and high-precision measurements of the motion of the planet Mars. It was the first of the superior planets. It was bright. It recurs in the sky in opposition roughly every 26 months or so. He started out by trying to measure the parallax of Mars. If he could get his precision down to one to two arc minutes, and if his estimates of what the size of the solar system were correct, he felt he should have been able to measure the distance to Mars. If he could do that, then he would have the anchor necessary for his system to know its physical size. You measure the parallax of Mars by watching it from sun to, sun to sunrise at the time of opposition. Now, of course, Mars is moving retrograded opposition, so you have to make multiple observations over multiple nights and pick apart the multiple motions, both Mars's orbital motion, the rotation of the Earth, and what it really is the rotation of the Earth, but the motion of the Earth across the sky, and look for a small angle difference right at the limit of its precision, and then if you got the parallax, you would immediately have the measurement of the, of the size of the orbit of Mars. He sought for many years to do this, and he kept failing. He'd push his accuracy as hard as he could. He dropped the precision down as best he could, but he couldn't get that observation, so he kept trying. 
which means that he amassed a very large amount of high-precision data on successive oppositions of Mars. Well, Tycho, as a member of the nobility, kind of put a lot of demands on the current king of Denmark. And when that king died, he turned out that he was a very impolitic person. He sort of pissed off his son, who then gained the throne. And his son, Christian, had absolutely no interest in supporting this loudmouth down on the island of Hvein. Tycho was not a very good employer. He abused the peasants to some degree. The peasants made a complaint to the king, and the, king used, the new king used that as a pretext to strip Tycho of his lands on Hvein. He was ordered to leave the island of Hvein and report to, the, um, report to the court in Copenhagen. He decided not to. In the year 1597, he left the king's service after 20 years of observations, starting with the Great Comet of 1577. In 1597, he just abruptly shut down the entire operation at Aronneborg, gathered up all of his notes, and wandered around Europe at the time. Denmark was an outpost of the Holy Roman Empire. It was loosely associated. It was an independent kingdom, but it was associated with the Holy Roman Empire, which was centered in Prague, in modern Czechoslovakia, actually the modern Czech Republic now. Um, the Holy Roman Empire goes back to the times of Charlemagne. It is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but it was, in fact, a fairly wealthy place. He worked his way into the court as the imperial mathematicus. So this was the imperial court mathematician, which meant his job was to solve hard word problems and do horoscopes for the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, of course, he had a lot of court duties, and he wanted to analyze his data. He tried to set up an astronomical shop there in Prague, but he needed assistance because he lost all of his assistance when he lost all of his money. And he managed to hire a young assistant by the name of Johannes Kepler, a young German mathematician who came highly, highly recommended to him. It was a good thing he hired Kepler and immediately set Kepler on the problem of measuring the motions of Mars. He figured that Kepler was, go was a good enough mathematician to handle the intricate mathematics required to show the truth of the Tychonic system, of the, all the planets going around the sun, and then that whole shebang going around the Earth. Unfortunately for Tycho, Tycho was not long to live after 1600. Um, he wasn't in terribly good health. The eating and, how should we say, heavy drinking habits of the time were not certainly conducive to health. Prague is not a very nice place from a weather point of view, although coming from Denmark, you'd think he'd be used to crappy weather. Uh, the story goes that as, as a member of the imperial court, he was required to attend court banquets. During the court banquets, a great deal of beer was consumed. Any of you who've consumed a great deal of beer at one sitting knows there's a certain time when, having borrowed some of that beer, it's time to get rid of some of it. But because of protocols, because the emperor did not get up, so could not Tycho. And unfortunately, sometime in the process of that, his bladder ruptured. An infection set in, and he died in a very nasty and painful way in a few days. Tycho was said to have of, of, of claimed on his deathbed, let me not seem to have lived in vain, because he had not completed his life's work. He hoped his son would actually take on the data. Of course, his son was not a very good mathematician and did not do so. But in this case, Tycho, in fact, did not live in vain because of his role in 1600 of hiring Johannes Kepler. Johannes Kepler was a slight generation after Tycho Brahe. He was born in 1571 and lived until the year 1630. He was an absolutely brilliant mathematician. He was a staunch Copernican right from the get-go. He was very different from Tycho Brahe. He was also different from Tycho in a lot of ways. Tycho was a member of the high Danish nobility. 
Johannes Kepler's father was a mercenary. His mother had many children. His father disappeared sometime in his youth, and Kepler had to, in fact, help raise the family. Later, when his mother was accused of witchcraft and imprisoned, it was Kepler who, as the imperial mathematicus and a lawyer, had to try to get her off the hook. The story goes that at one point she was threatened with torture, and one of the stages of torture in the late Renaissance was to take someone down and show them the weapons and the rather sadistic bastard who's going to wield them, and that usually convinced most people to start talking when you saw what these things were like. Kepler's mother showed unusual interest in the weapons. They decided she was really insane and let her go. Well, back to Kepler. Kepler was convinced that the universe was governed by physical laws and that those physical laws were expressible mathematically. Kepler really is the first modern scientist in many ways. Furthermore, he was personally obsessed with finding harmony in the heavens. It was like he was almost a reincarnated Pythagorean. There was Pythagoras' idea of the universal harmonies of the heavens. Copernicus felt that the mathematics of the heavens would reflect this because this was obviously the highest expression of God's creation and that these harmonies being expressible mathematically literally in musical terms to him. He also had an absolute genius for analyzing data. He was not a very good observer because, unfortunately, he was nearsighted and he could not use the instruments of Tycho Brahe, but he had Tycho's data. When Tycho died, he was, after a long series of negotiations in 1601, he was appointed in Tycho's place as the imperial mathematicus, which gave him an income and a place to work, and he also had to cast horoscopes for the emperor as well. And after a court fight with Tycho's son, he acquired all of Tycho's notebooks and set about continuing the work that Tycho had put before him, the analysis of the motions of Mars. Now, Mars was a very fortuitous planet to choose because Tycho's lifelong effort to, to attempt to measure the parallax of Mars to set the size scale for his Tychonic system gave Kepler access to some of the most precise data ever taken on Mars. Mars turns out to be the key to actually unlocking the secrets of planetary motion that has so far been hidden for all of human history. Kepler began the work in 1601. It took him four years of grinding labor to work his way through the data. He started out by determining the orbit of the Earth. He used successive oppositions of Mars to trace out what the orbit of the Earth was because he was absolutely convinced from the get-go that it was a Copernican system. To Kepler, he didn't even start with the Earth at the center. He put the Sun at the center of the solar system and used the successive oppositions of Mars to trace out the circle of the Earth to get its eccentric position right and to get the size of that circle right. Once he got that, then he said, well, now all the observations of Mars are being made from this moving platform. So we need to fit an off-center circle to the orbit of Mars. So we fit an off-center circle, very slightly off-center, to the orbit of the Earth. Again, this was known, this was the eccentric. He then found the precision eccentric of the orbit of Mars. He picked four points along that orbit because any four points will always go through a circle. So he set those four points up, did all the math by hand, found the off-center circle of Mars. And then he tried to fit a fifth point taken from one of the other sets of data and the point didn't fit on the circle. In fact, it was away from the circle, it deviated from the circle by eight minutes of arc. That's an important number because Tycho had accuracy of one to two arc minutes. So this wasn't a mistake, it actually did deviate by eight minutes of arc. This gives you some feel of what these calculations are like. This is from a first edition of De Motus Stelle Martis. This is a book by Kepler describing his observations of the orbit of Mars. Here's the sun at the center, Mercury and Venus, the circle of the Earth, there's the moon there and some 
jiggings on this motion of the moon. Of course, this little floral bit, because, you know, Kepler liked to doodle in the, the, the origins, too. The books had to be pretty. First thing Kepler did was to work out the circle of the Earth, and then through a series of angles, begin to lay down points on the, surf, on the circle of Mars. You get an idea because this book contains all of the calculations, the final worked out calculations. He showed all the steps in his homework, if you will. This is the geometry behind this. There it was. Four points on the circle, the off-center circle of Mars. The fifth point missed by eight minutes. This is the watershed. This is the time when the world changes. Kepler did something that nobody else had bothered to do for 20 centuries. He listened to the data. He said that, you know, Tycho was never off by eight arc minutes. One or two, yes, but eight, he could never make a mistake like that. So this is not a point I'm going to throw out and ignore because it doesn't match my model. The data is trying to tell me something. What the data is trying to tell me is that the orbit of Mars is not a circle. Kepler then began to question the assumptions that went into his model. At the time of Kepler, he was a staunch Copernican. Perfect circles, uniform circular motion, the sun at the center, the Earth moving upon a circle in an eccentric position. He realized right away as he began to analyze the Mars data that there were two main assumptions that were just plain wrong. Number one is that uniform circular motion doesn't work. It can't be in uniform circular motion. It's simply not allowed by the data. And the second was that Mars's orbit wasn't even a circle. In fact, it was an ellipse with the sun located at a geometric focus. So Kepler, in one step, listened to his data, realized that 2,000 years of assumptions of perfect circularity and uniform circular motion were simply wrong. And he set about saying, well, if they're wrong, what are they? And in that moment, set about on the, wor on the step stepping stones to the beginning of modern science. He published the results in the year 1609 in a book called the Astronomia Nova, the New Astronomy. He realized he had a real revolution on his hands. Now this is a way of looking at the picture here. This is the sun, the circle of the earth in blue, the circle of Mars in orange. If the circle of Mars and the circle of Earth were exactly centered on the sun, a la, Coper on a, a, la a simple minded view of Copernicus, all the centers here shown as crosses would overlap. But in fact, those centers are off-circle, off-center. Earth is just a little tiny bit off-center, and Mars is a little bit off-center, and this is the right proportions that they expect for them. And if Mars was an orbit of a circle, four points would have fit upon here. But what Kepler found was it wasn't a circle, it was an ellipse. And what I've drawn to exact scale is the ellipse of Mars. And you can see that it just misses here on the top. It's just visible in PowerPoint. The Radius of the orbit of Mars is about 225 million kilometers. The deviation between a perfect circle and this slightly squashed ellipse is 1 million kilometers, one part in 230. But Tycho's data was precise enough to see that deviation, and Kepler was smart enough to recognize it in the data. From this, he formulated three laws describing planetary motion, and they are as follows. The first law of planetary motion states that the orbits of the planets are ellipses with the sun at one focus. All the machinery of epicycles, equants, eccentrics, deference is gone. He's simply thrown them out and said the circle is not the right shape. It is an ellipse, a specific geometric shape known to us for all, from time, from, for example, the conics 
of Apollonius of Perga. Ellipses are characterized by two numbers. A circle's characterized by just one number, its radius or its diameter, if you will. But an ellipse requires two numbers. An ellipse is kind of a slightly squashed circle. Those two numbers are the semi-major axis, which we call mathematically A, which is the size of the longest axis. It is, if you will, the radius equivalent, how big the ellipse is. And this number called E, the eccentricity, which describes the shape of the ellipse. If E is zero, then the, there is zero eccentricity, the ellipse is a perfect circle. And now we see that the circle is nothing more than the special case of an ellipse with zero eccentricity. E of one would be an ellipse squashed completely flat. And so E is a number between zero and one. For example, the orbit of Mars has a size A, a semi-major axis of 1.5237. That's the maximum size of the circle from the center of the ellipse out to one of the, the longest edge. And the eccentricity is tiny, 0 0.0934. That's what produces that tiny one part in 230 deviation from a perfectly circular shape. The Earth's eccentricity is about 0.016, and other orbits have slightly different eccentricity. In many ways, we got lucky. Mars has the second largest eccentricity of the naked eye planets. The largest eccentricity belongs to, eccentricity belongs to Mercury, but Mercury is too difficult to observe because it's so close to the sun. So in many ways, we got fortunate. If he had been looking, as said, at Jupiter or at Venus, those two have nearly perfectly circular orbits, and he'd never seen their ellipticity in Tycho's data. Let me exaggerate the shape of the ellipse here. The ellipse has a long axis. On that ellipse are two points called foci. The way you generate an ellipse is you take a string and you tack it down to each of the foci, and then you drag the string until it's pulled tight. And then as you drag that string around, keeping it pulled tight, you will actually draw out an ellipse. Much in the same way that to draw a circle, you lay a string down at the center and you simply draw around with one pin. So you use two pins to spread it out, and you get the ellipse. It's a very simple but very specific geometric construction. The center of the ellipse is here, exactly between the two foci. And this half size here, this semi-major axis, major meaning the long axis, the semi-major axis measures, if you will, the distance from the center to the long axis edge. It's the radius equivalent of an ellipse. It tells you the basic size. The degree to which it's squashed, and the way I've drawn it, it's squashed along the minor axis, which of course is, as I've drawn it here, perpendicular to the major axis. So the minor axis is here, and the, the eccentricity is basically a combination of the squares of those sizes. If we place the sun, is not located at the center of the ellipse, but for Mars, the sun is located at one focus. What's at the other focus? Nothing, nothing particularly special. It's just the other focus because it's a symmetry point in the two-fold symmetry of the ellipse. A circle has one-fold symmetry. It's equal distance from a center. An ellipse is a body with two-fold symmetry, a major and a minor axis. Because it has a two-fold symmetry, there are two focal positions. One of them is fundamental because the sun is there. The other one is where the sun is not. You'll notice an interesting thing. We've kind of seen this picture before a little bit. Remember when we had the center of the deferent, and we had the Earth at one eccentric, and then there was that off-center point where we ran the equant? They were that close to having the elliptical shape with Ptolemy. But he never saw it. <laughs> that close. The second law is even more fundamental, but a little harder to state. 
The line joining the sun and the planet sweeps out equal areas and equal times. Now, I'll show you some pictures for this. What this means is that planets will move faster at perihelion when they're close to the sun and slowest at aphelion. Kepler's second law is a geometric law that provides a geometric description of the change in speed that has been observed for all the planets. It also expre expresses the geometric change in speed of the Earth as it orbits around the sun. That's why the sun speeds up in the winter and slows down in the summer. Because the Earth's orbit is ever so slightly elliptical, it moves faster at perihelion, slower at aphelion. But what's even more important is the second law doesn't need epicycles. They're gone. Everyone has used epicycles since, since Hipparchus. Copernicus had to use epicycles. Tycho had to use epicycles. But Kepler said, we don't need them anymore. He crumpled up the complex machinery of the heavens and simply threw it away. They said, no, there's a simple geometric description if a planet sweeps out equal areas and equal laws. You can express it mathematically and geometrically without the need of machinery, with no more wheels within wheels, the crystalline spheres of Aristotle have been forever smashed. Here's how it works. Let's start out here with the planet at Mars, say, on this exaggerated ellipse, time t equals zero, and I ask, where is it going to be 10 days from now? Well, it's going to move 10 days along its orbit, and I make a big, long triangle. Now, you may remember from your geometry that the area of a triangle is one-half the base times the height. Well, the height of this triangle is simply the distance of the sun to the planet at that time, and the base is how far it moved in 10 days. And that sweeps out the area I've shown in sort of light blue. Now let's move over here to the other side of the orbit. The other side of the orbit is near perihelion. It's close to the sun. Therefore, to sweep out an equal area, 10 days later, it must be here. The height is shorter, so I have to increase the length of the base. Okay, it's not an exactly a triangle. I've got an arc there, but the mathematics is identical. The blue area here, if I pulled it apart, would actually exactly paint in the blue area here. The planet, using a line from the sun to the planet, has swept out an equal area in equal times. In order to sweep out an equal area in 10 days that it did out here at aphelion, it has to move a greater distance at perihelion because at perihelion it's got a shorter height and therefore needs a larger base. And these two are exactly equal. So the planet, if you will, knows, oh, I'm further away, I have to move in such a way as to sweep out equal areas in equal times. Kepler didn't fully understand this. He thought of it in terms of some influence forcing the planet to move this way. He didn't fully understand the concept of forces, but this is in fact what is observed. This is a geometric description of what the motions actually look like. It sweeps out equal areas in equal times. I'll draw a little cartoon here for you, a little movie to, sh to de demonstrate this. And of course, QuickTime is going to be slow to launch. There we go. So we'll start out at perihelion on this notional planet. It sweeps out equal areas and equal time intervals of the little brown triangles. As it moves further and further away from the sun during aphelion, the triangle gets stretched long and thin. So now we have to have a shorter base. As it moves closer to the sun, it appears to have to move faster and faster so that it sweeps out equal areas in equal time. And so you see this effect of the planet swinging quickly around the sun and slowly moving out of aphelion and falling in and swinging faster again. But it can be described 
precisely and mathematically. And just with that very simple geometric description, you can describe all the non-uniform motions of the sun, moon, and all the planets. You don't need 48 wheels within wheels to do the job. It's simply embedded in the geometry of the system. But the third law, that one was a shock. The third law of planetary motion is that the square of the planet's orbital period, how long it takes to go around the sun once, is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of the orbit. So how long it takes Saturn to go around the sun, and how long it takes Mercury to go around the sun, are not just arbitrary accidents of the assembly of the solar system. This period, the time it takes to go around the sun, squared is directly proportional to the cube of the size of its orbit ellipse. Expressed mathematically, p squared, the period squared is equal to the semi-major axis cubed. p squared equals a cubed. If you take the period in years and you put the semi-major axis in astronomical units, a la Copernicus, they all march in line. In fact, let's just do that. This is now using modern data. The semi-major axis of the orbits of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. In AUs, the Earth is 1. The period in years, Earth is 1 in years. 0.241 for Mercury, 0.615 years, Mars, Jupiter, and Venus. I compute A cubed and P squared, and you compare them, and notice that they agree pretty much to the third and fourth decimal places. Not exact, but to within the ability of Kepler to compute, they were exactly matching. Kepler, who was obsessed from childhood with mystical harmonies in the heavens, finds that the period squared is proportional to the semi-major axis cubed, a 2 and a 3. Not p to the 2.5 and a to the 3 and a quarter, p squared equals a cubed. He called it his harmonic law. In fact, the harmonic law applies to all bodies orbiting to each other in gravity, planets, comets, rocks, spacecraft. You can even write a version of the third law for the Earth and the Moon and satellites going around the Earth. It's a universal law and it demands explanation, but Kepler thought he'd found a universal harmony. He so much convinced himself that he found a universal harmony that in book five of the Harmonici Mundi, the, heaven, the harmony of the worlds, he described the changing speeds of the planets on a musical scale. This is from the book five of the Harmonici Mundi. Saturn has a very lightly elliptical orbit. He made the pitch higher pitch, faster speed on the orbit at perihelion, lower pitch, slowest speed at aphelion, and he gave them all a period in the measure describing their period times. So the most eccentric of all the planets, Mercury, has the largest range of pitch. Mars, even, here is the circle of the moon. And the Earth, barely there. Venus, he thought was circular, just simply plays the same note over and over again. Someone, people have actually scored this to music, but no one's actually ripped it onto an MP3, so I can't play it for you. But there it is, the harmony of the heavens, literally. These are empirical laws. So far, we do not have a physical explanation for why they work. But all three of these, without using epicycles, equants, deference, can explain a Copernican-like system, a heliocentric system, but it's definitely not Copernican. It's something completely new. It explains beautifully how the heavens move. But it doesn't explain why they're moving that way. Why is p squared proportional to a cubed? He doesn't explain that. 
These are not yet physical laws. We don't have the explanation for why. Kepler made a start. He thought there were physical laws behind this, but he had incorrect notions about what forces were. He was on the right track, but he wasn't there yet. That took another generation to come. But Kepler's thinking was strongly motivated by his ideas of, of, of universal harmony. He knew that there were rules that governed the universe that were mathematically expressible, and by harmonies he felt they must be simple, elegant, and beautiful. Kepler set the stage for the next two people, Galileo Galilei and Isaac Newton, who were to complete the work and give the physical explanation. See you all tomorrow. All right.